Welcome to The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie. It's good to have you back if you joined us last week for what we think was a very engaging conversation with Oprah Winfrey. But if you join us for the first time, we do welcome you. And if it is your first time, I am reading addict, podcast, co-host, mother of two, Kate Gibson. And I'm Charlie Gibson. I I do hope you heard the conversation last week with Oprah, because this podcast is all about getting people to read and, and giving recommendations that we think might be worth reading. And if you're anything like me, I finished our conversation with Oprah and ran to pick up a book. She makes the case as well as anyone can that you're doing something important, not just pleasurable, when you read a book. When my father reads a book that he really, really, really loves, uh, I know that I'm going to get a package in the mail in the next couple of days uh, with the book in it, and then you better read it right away. My sister will get one too, and then we get, have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? And... The guest that we have on this show, which is a real treat, an Irish writer, Niall Williams, uh, who's written many books, uh, This is Happiness, uh, Four Letters of Love, The History of the Rain. When I read the book, This is Happiness, which is the book that my father sent to me, uh, I knew it wasn't going to be an awkward conversation. I knew it was going to be a conversation where we could match enthusiasms. And that was amazing. Um, And we knew when we did this, he was one of the first writers we wanted to talk to. In discussing these podcasts and how we wanted to start out, uh, Kate and I decided we better begin with as solid a recommendation as we can make, because first impressions are so important. And thus, we do start with a book that's been out for a while. Uh, It appeared in 2019, I think, and as Kate said, This is Happiness is the book. Niall Williams, uh, who lives in County Clare, Ireland, on the West Coast, a small village, which I read somewhere, has only 37 houses. Um, But Irish writing and Irish storytelling is really a tradition, and he has got it down to a T. So if you haven't read this book or don't know about it, This is Happiness, give it a chance. And if you have read it, I know you're going to enjoy hearing Niall Williams on this podcast because his Irish lilt is delightful and his storytelling is as lovely, Kate, I think, as his prose. Absolutely. I will put my money where my mouth is with this book. I work (laughs) part-time at a bookstore. When there is a hole in the staff rec section, I always run to fill it with this. And I write something different on the staff recommendation card every time. But the one line that makes it from card to card to card is, this is Irish storytelling at its best. He's a romantic, I think, Kate. And he comes to a conclusion, I think you will come to a conclusion as a writer, that he has a very good sense of what is happiness. It's very hard to define, but I think in his characters and in his depiction of how you find happiness, because it's just in the day-to-day, is lovely. And and his prose, you, you'll actually hear him in this uh, quote from the beginning of the second chapter when he goes a long, long explanation about the rain in his fictitious town of Faha, F-A-H-A. And he says, and this is a part that he won't read, but I just, it gives you a good sense of his prose. It came like a judgment, or in benign version like a blessing that God had forgotten he left on. That's a wonderful way of talking about rain. It came disguised as hair, as sleet, but never as snow. It came softly sometimes, tenderly sometimes, 
its spears turned to kisses in rain that pretended it was not rain, that had come down to be closer to the fields whose green it loved and fostered until it drowned them, all of which to attest to the one truth, in Faha it rained. Niall Williams has it down pat, down to a T, and so here he is, our conversation with Niall Williams. Niall Williams, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. But your personal story, it strikes me, is integral to to understanding and appreciating your your prose. Where are you? How did you get there? And and why are you there? Well, th- thank you, Charlie. Hello, Kate. Um, it's lovely to be in the bookcase. Not a sentence I'd ever thought I'd say, um, but I'm happy to be here. Um, so where I am at the moment is uh, I'm in the place that I've been in um, since April 1st of 1985. That is, I'm in Kiltumper in West Clare on the Atlantic coast of Ireland, um, where Chris and I have been uh, making our life and writing, both of us and Chris painting as well, um, since we left New York on April 1st, 1985, um, and came here to the house that Chris's grandfather was born in and left to go to America when he was 17. And uh, so we moved to that house, uh, the four rooms of this house, as it was then, um, in 1985, to see if we had any talent. Hmm. <laughs> what, what specifically were you looking for by going back there? And, and did you find it? Well, um, I think the first thing to say is probably, so by that time, Chris was working for the American Journal of Medicine as a copy editor, and I was working for Avon Books as a copywriter. And um, we were commuting into Manhattan from Westchester on the train every morning. And at seven o'clock in the morning in Westchester at that time, the most beautiful people I ever saw were gathered on the train station, um, elegant, uh, coiffed, showered, well-dressed people, uh, women with high heels and little brown bags and sneakers on. And we all arrived into Manhattan on that morning train and dispersed through the Pan Am building and out from Grand Central and disappeared into the world. And when, when you, into New York, and when you got back on that train at 6.30 in the evening and you were sitting on that train going back out to Westchester, you looked at the people and you felt that they had given the best of themselves to the city. Men's ties were pulled a little awry. The newspaper they were reading, maybe the New York Post, was splayed open on their laps and fell onto the floor of the train as they nodded, heading back out to be stirred awake by the uh, the, the train conductor shouting, Pleasantville, next stop, Pleasantville. Heads stirred and people got up and left. Um, and it occurred to me that, and to Chris, fortunately, that... Um, we could easily be sitting on that train and five years could pass and 10 years could pass. And we would never have answered the question, what if we had time to write? Could we do it? Could we make a living, a different kind of living just out of our wits? Um, and so essentially we needed to get off that commuter train to answer that question. So um, we came basically to find time and space 
and to be alone with the idea that um, the, be, be alone with the question of as to whether or not you had any talent, could you write something? And in that first year, then we wrote Oh Come You Back, um, that chronicle of actually what happened each day of that year. And ultimately that became uh, our first book. And I regard it as a sort of an apprenticeship, learning, trying to learn how to write about what was exactly in front of you, what you could see and try to get that onto the page. And the book is just simply one year in, in, in our life then. Um, and fortunately, by the end of that year, when that, the book was sent back to New York, and um, found a publisher immediately. And when it came out, the New York Times gave it a wonderful review and it sort of gave us a little bit of courage to say, okay, we'll try and do this a bit more, basically. And so that's sort of how it was. How is it writing together? And are there ever times that you have to maintain peace in the house after a day of writing together? No, no. It's, I, people often ask that question, and it seems to us the most natural thing in the world. And Chris, in any case, in, in fiction, um, is my first reader. We are a team. Uh, we took that leap together. So Chris was, a, was an excellent, excellent editor um, with a really keen eye. And uh, she doesn't let me away with anything too much. She knows my excesses and, you know, superfluities and so on. And she's pretty good at saying, what about this? Um, and I'm happy to listen to her. Sometimes you can say, okay, no, I'm, I know that's superfluous, but I'm still leaving it in. Um, and that's okay. And she understands that too. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about the, the, the excess because you're, you are a terrific nonlinear storyteller and your narrator takes you in all sorts of directions. And it's, it's, it's really for a reader, it's very charming, but uh, you know, so I'm, I'm reading the history of the rain. You're taking yes. us on a tour through the entire town. Every once in a while, sort of tapping the reader on the back and saying, okay, I need you to turn left here. And so what I was wondering, um, uh, is <laughs> when you're writing, do you ever think, okay, I've gone too far off topic. I need to get back to what I'm writing. Um, I, I think, um, when, when writing fiction, um, I'm, I'm writing with a sense of, I'm, I'm relying entirely upon what I would regard as a storyteller's instinct. And that storyteller's instinct is the instinct that knows whether the reader is with you or not and knows, okay, we need to move it on now or we can play here. Um, and, and once that bond is created with the reader, I, in my experience, you'd be surprised at how far you can go and the reader will go with you um, for the ride, essentially. So as long as the language is strong and good and the images are uh, fresh and that, I think the, the, there's a sort of sense in which um, that instinct, which I don't think can be really taught, um, is the thing, there's the sort of tightrope that you live by. But in, in History of the Rain, it takes its logic essentially from the river and the meander style. And so it allows, it's, it says that it's going to meander and it meanders. Um, and the reader sort of eventually trusts it will, it will arrive, I think. You use the word story, and that is such an important yeah. part of what you write. And perhaps I, I romanticize because I've always been beguiled by my image of Ireland, and I've spent a lot of time in the country, and particularly rural Ireland, as having 
a softness about the business of living and having a rich storytelling tradition. Uh, just to quote from, from you, we, we are our stories. We tell them to stay alive and keep alive those who only live now in the telling. That's how it seems to me, you write, being alive for a little while, the teller and the told. Talk to me about storytelling. Is it, is it in the Irish DNA? Well, it's in my DNA and I'm Irish, but I think um, I'm, I was aware from, I, it's impossible not to be aware from uh, early childhood um, in education in Ireland that we have a story tradition. So you are early on introduced to the great short story writers and Frank O'Connor and so on. You're, you're reading these people when you're 12. So there's a kind of, at least in my time of education, things may have changed now, but in my time of education, um, storytelling and storytellers were revered. And so you knew who Frank O'Connor was, you knew, knew Sean O'Fallon was, Liam O'Flaherty, et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually you knew Saki and, you know, you, you knew Henry stories and so on. They were taught, was it? There was a special book um, just for short stories that was taught in uh, secondary school uh, between ages of 12 and 14. And so story um, as, a, as a thing uh, had an honored place, I think, in my education. And, that, and I, so that's formal story. Secondly, when we moved here in 1985, Rural Ireland, at least rural West Clare, was still very much a traditional society. And in the evenings, we would go on what's called a cord, um, that is on an unannounced visit to a neighbor's house. And you would just show up at the neighbor's house and go in and you would spend the evening. It became obvious to me very early on that your job as the visitor was to bring story. And story is not, I don't mean story in the sense of a made up story. I mean, just telling your own experience in a narrative way. So at those times, we were completely, you know, we were like um, characters in Green Acres, that TV show. Mm -hmm. So here we were, two people who had come from New York City, even though I had born in Dublin, we, we had come from New York City um, to rural West of Ireland. So we knew nothing whatsoever about the way people lived here. Nothing at all. No real experience. And we had five cows, which we, we had to have because you had a lot of land. So say, OK, we better buy five cows. So I knew nothing at all. I grew up in a family. We never even had a goldfish. So I remember one of the first things that we, we did that summer, that, that spring when we came around this time, was I was trying to avoid digging bridges for potatoes. And we had read in America, there was this wonderful thing. You could just put the potatoes on top of the weeds. And we had masses of weeds and cover them with black plastic. And the potatoes would come up through the black plastic and you saved yourself all the work. You just cut a little hole in the black plastic and up would come the potato. And you'd save all the work of the weeding and the, the mounding up, the earthing, all of that. And so we would go to down to a neighbor's house and say, he'd say, what are you doing? And he'd say, well, today we put in the potatoes. And they say, oh, the plastic potatoes. How, how are the plastic potatoes? And so on. <laughs> and for a good maybe two months, those potatoes grew beautifully. Stalks came up, they came flowered, everything seemed marvelous. And it seemed to be like we had brought revolution to the locality. Until the day when we had to lift the plastic to get the potatoes out. And where we found that what we had created was a magnificent habitat for slugs 
<laughs> worms, eel worms, every kind of thing was under that plastic. And every single one of those potatoes were absolutely destroyed. So bringing that story of your own experience to neighbors and so on, you understood that they enjoyed that. They enjoyed the story. They enjoyed your experience of it and so on. And so little by little um, in our time, in our first years, particularly here, um, we, we became, began to understand, particularly among the older people, who really appreciated a story, um, the value of telling a story and that it was valued here and that people liked when you came in the door because they knew you were bringing something new or different or some just from your own life experience. That. You should have sold tickets to the residents when you picked up that plastic. I bet they would have enjoyed that very much. Yeah. Uh, are you, when you sit down to write a novel, are you a meticulous plotter or are you someone who sometimes is surprised by where your plots end up? Um, so I have no idea of the plot at all. None. I have a sentence. And just try to describe the experience like this. Um, I have this sentence, the one sentence, and I can't start until I get that sentence. Then I have that sentence. I have no idea what the book is about or where we're going or who the characters are or anything else. But I would describe the sentence as the tip of a thread that is poking out. And my job every day is to tease that thread a little more each time, not yank it and snap it, not force it, just see what would the next sentence be? What would the next one be? And little by little in the belief that when there is that tip of the thread in front of me is in fact an invisible coat. It's fully there. It's all there. And I just have to find out what it is. And so I pull the thread slowly, slowly, slowly until in the end, over here, we have a, a real actual coat, which I believe was always the one that was implied by that first sentence. I think it was Edith Wharton who said a first page in a novel um, should contain the whole novel in miniature. Um, and I have some sense of that in, in the first sentence. Um, the first sentence of Mrs. Happiness is simply, um, it has stopped raining. And for me, the whole novel is included is in that. Everything is about it in that. It both gives a sense of fairy tale, fable. It gives a sense of something momentous has happened, something natural and something could be supernatural. It gives all of those things, you know, a sense of change, the change that's going to come to society. All those things are contained in that single sentence, um, I think. So uh, for me, I'm working in the blind, in the dark, trying to figure out what the story is. In This Is Happiness, that first sentence is the whole first chapter and yeah. and then the second chapter and and if you're not beguiled by the beginning of the second chapter which is which is a page and a half description of the rain in ireland um all of its different manifestations and i i i, I can't i've got it in front of me i wouldn't quote it because it's so long but it's it's it just draws you in and you feel what life is like in Faha with the rain. Um, and would you, Charlie, would you, would you like me to read a little of it? Yeah, sure. Please. And you can, you can see, I'll, I'll just, I, I know it's long, so I'll. Uh, I love it. I'll try and, I'll try and read a little and then. It had stopped raining. 
nobody in Faha could remember when it started. Rain there on that western seaboard was a condition of living. It came straight down and sideways, frontwards, backwards, and any other words God could think of. It came in sweeps and waves, sometimes in veils. It came dressed as drizzle, as mizzle, as mist, as showers, frequent and widespread. As a wet fog, as a damp day, a drop, a dreeping, and an out-and-out downpour. It came the fine day, the bright day, and the day promised dry. They came at any time of the day and night and in all seasons, regardless of calendar and forecast, until in Faha, your clothes were rain and your skin was rain and your house was rain with a fireplace. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters, using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. You have not been shy, actually, about about where you live. Uh, you've talked about the, the village in, uh, in Western Ireland on the Atlantic coast or near the Atlantic coast. And I, I looked it up on Google maps and you don't even, you don't even warrant a dot on the, on the <laughs> Google maps, but you're right down the road from Nakanin. I'm going to mispronounce this. Nakanin. Uh, yes. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, And Nakanila. Uh, all of those yes. are right nearby. Um, how badly is he slaughtered the pronunciation? I'm sure oh, I did. That's all right. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it is, as I say, I romanticize small town Irish, Irish life. And, and when I put the book down, Niall, I thought I, I want to get on a plane and go over and knock on his front door just because mm. I love the language so much. And, and, and I wonder, uh, have any readers ever done that? Uh, have come down the road and, and, and wanted to say hi? Yes, actually, many, many. <laughs> Um, so after that first book that we wrote, um, together came out, um, and we went, the book came out and it was reviewed, better reviewed in the New York times and Sunday morning with Charles Crawls came and filmed a little segment here. Um, the following summer, 300 Americans showed up at the house. Um, so... 
they, they, one of the lessons that I learned, so in that book, in that first book, it's a true account of a year in our lives, I say. Um, but in it, we, men- we mentioned, I think Chris asks me or I ask her in the book, you know, what are we missing about America at this stage? And you have to be careful what you put in there. So at that time, uh, the, the Sunday New York Times was the best newspaper in the world that I could ever had come across. So I loved to get the Sunday New York Times and so many sections in it and so many different things. And it was just marvelous. And so that was one of the things I mentioned. <laughs> Chris mentioned pumpkin pie and Skippy peanut butter and these things um, and that she missed as American. So it came to be that the following year, people would get off their plane in Shannon Airport and come straight to our house with a pumpkin pie, uh, Skippy peanut butter, New York Times. And it's fine. Really, it's fine. Most of the time, if we're here, we're say, happy to say hello to people because people um, are, are, are genuinely very, um, the people who want to come to the house like that or say hello, they're genuinely very moved um, by the books in some way. Personally, it, it touched um, and want to sort of say that, share that in some way. So there can be an intimacy achieved sometimes between a book and a reader, which is maybe some of the most powerful intimacy that can happen in the world. Um, so I'm happy, I'm happy for that because I, I, once a book is finished, I never feel I own it in any shape or form. I'm finished with it. It now is somebody else's book. It's in the world's book, bookshop's book, library's book, and then ultimately the reader's book. And so um, you have to honor that, I think. It's interesting you say that I, having done breakfast television in the United States for 19 years, you are in people's homes at a most intimate time of day. The dishes aren't done, the beds aren't made, um, it, it, you're disorganized to some extent. And yet here we are saying, let us into your home. And as yes. a result, people look at you as a friend. I always thought I have millions of friends that I don't know. Um, but when, when they come and greet you in a restaurant and sit down at your table, it can become a little bit, uh, obtrusive. It's very complimentary. It's very nice, but it's, and it's so good to see you shake hands. I'm glad you watched the show. Goodbye. You have written a lot of plays. Do you think you'll ever go back to playwriting? It's so difficult. Um, I began as a playwright. Really, after the nonfiction, I first wrote a play that went on in the Abbey Theatre um, in 1991, main stage, and uh, was an absolute disaster. Um, so the review in the Irish Times at that time, I still read reviews. Um, the review in the Irish Times headline was total and embarrassing waste. So <laughs> plays are difficult, really difficult. Um, I'd like to think that I would write another play and try again. Um, but it seems to me that when you come up with an idea for a play um, and you have a first challenge to try to get that onto the page and you've got a vision of a, something onto a page, that page has to be then read by a director who has to get some version of the thing that was in your head from the page now in their head. And then it has to be transferred 
to the actors, and then the actors have to transfer it to an audience. And at every juncture along that, there's opportunities. So it's like a, a little candle you've lit, which is the flame is passed on to that person, passed on, passed on, and then has to meet the audience. And the opportunities for it to change in that transference, for it to become unrecognizable in my experience sometimes, um, and for it to just fail, fail from the, where you started with it is much, much greater for me than it is with a novel where it's you yourself only who are in charge of it. And so if it fails, it's just you. Whereas uh, with a play, I just found it just much more difficult. I think if you, if you go to see a play and it's a fully successful play, it's an absolute miracle. It's an absolutely wonderful, miraculous thing. But um it's sort of daunting to me now, that, I, that, that idea. When somebody gave me This Is Happiness and said, you've got to read this, I knew nothing about you. I knew nothing about the book. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what a title. Is this a self-help book? Um, <laughs> yeah. This Is Happiness. But, but I, I came to realize that, that your definition of happiness lies in the pure joy of living of the simple mm -hmm. things. And, and that becomes so apparent at the end of the book. And I, I, I quote again, I came to understand you could stop at not all, but most of the moments in your life, stop for one heartbeat. And no matter what the state of your head or heart say, this is happiness because of the simple truth that you are alive to say it. What is your definition of happiness beyond that? And have you found it? In County Clare. Well, yes, I, I found it when I stopped looking for it, um, when I stopped putting it ahead of me and stopped thinking of it as something in the future. Um, so I feel uh, as I've gotten older, um, I've become more grateful just to be, just to be. And that um, I, I genuinely feel a sense, maybe in today's blue, blue skies, absolutely amazing day, birds thronging everywhere and the trees singing. And you do have a sense today of having come through, um, not only COVID and so on, but a sense of the winter. And as I get older, I'm more aware of the need to come through the winter and get to the other side of it each time. Um, so although the world itself, the big picture geopolitically and, and what's happening in Ukraine and so on are absolutely wretched and and, and it's easy to fall to some kind of just despair um, as we see world patterns repeat. In the individual moment of your living right now, uh, you can still see the sky and hear music and read wonderful things. And, and to me, anyway, that, that, that informs my sense of maybe happiness is too strong. Maybe it's just peace. I feel a sense of grace. That's what I'm trying to write about now. I feel a sense of grace. Um, and yeah, that's, that's where it is. So it was a high risk calling the book, This is Happiness. Uh, it, it didn't have a title. Chris read the book in manuscript. Um, and when she read that page, she said, I think this is the title. I said, how could I dare call a book? This is happiness. I can already see the reviews starting. This is not happiness. Uh, <laughs> this so. is hell. But you make a very important point, I think, because when you, it, it's dismaying to me when you ask a parent what he or she wants for a child. So often they'll say, I want them to be happy. And, and, and that's, that's not, it, it is not a goal. It's a byproduct. It yeah. is something that happens. Um, 
when you can appreciate the kinds of things that you just enumerated. I mean, I think, I think Charlie, if somebody says, I, I want my child to be happy, the answer to that is they already are. Mm-hmm. Not all, but most of the moments in life stop for one heartbeat. And no matter what the state of your head or heart, you can say this is happiness. That's a wonderful way to end, Niall Williams. I, I thank you ever so much. Uh, both Kate and I are in love with your prose. And I think um, people who are listening to this podcast, if they haven't read you yet, um, they will find the same joy in your prose that both of us did. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Case. That's been an absolute honor. We have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. Book, e-reader, or audio? Book. Favorite time to read? After dinner. Do you spend more time writing or reading? Um, When I'm writing, I spend more time writing. Um, I only ever write in the mornings. Um, So I'm always finished by lunchtime. Most influential book in your life? Great expectations. Really? Why? Because it's the first time that I entered the world of a novel. I entered a fictional world that I wanted to be in more than I wanted to be in the world. So I was a schoolboy. I was 13 years of age. And uh, like all readers, male readers anyway, fell in love with Estella. And you fell in love in the same way you would feel in, fell in love later in real life. You absolutely wanted it to work out between Pip and Estella. And then ultimately, I think we all try to repeat pleasures that we experience in life. And so I wanted to write a book that reader would get inside and be inside as I, the writer, would be inside it too. Favorite children's book that you read to your kids? Um, probably Goodnight Moon um, was the book that we read to, that I enjoyed reading to the kids a lot. Um, but there were many, there were many, some of the Dr. Seuss books as well, but Goodnight Moon would probably be the one. Is there a book still on your bucket list? I, I don't know that there is a book on my bucket list like that. I, I find what I'm doing now is rereading books that I read when I was 19. And I find that reading them now, nearly 64, um, I, uh, they're new books to me. Because when I read them at 19 or 20, and so I appreciate them uh, in a sort of more profound way. So I'd be quite happy to spend the rest of my days rereading Tolstoy, Dickens, rereading old books that I, that I read quickly um, when I was younger. Do you read your reviews? Never. Not since 1991. My guiltiest reading pleasure is? My guiltiest reading pleasure is probably when I'm reading about... Uh, match reports of Manchester United. <laughs> That's your team, huh? Hey, to say, sorry, to say it's my team is such a belittling thing. Um, <laughs> it's so much more than that. <laughs> In five words, describe what you want the rest of your life to be. I, I want the rest of my life to be um, loving. That's it. Niall Williams, our conversation from his small town in County Clare on the western coast of Ireland. Kate, what did you take away from from our conversation? 
Well, I'm fascinated by the idea of spending your evenings dropping by unannounced on your neighbors. I can't think of any community I've lived in. I mean, I'm a New Yorker first and foremost, and I lived in the same apartment for, you know, five or six years on the same floor. And I, I didn't know the names of my neighbors. I sort of knew that that one kind of played the tuba at night. And that one at the end of the hall walked her cat on occasion. But that's sort of all I knew about them. The idea of going into each other's personal spaces unannounced and having a rapport with them unannounced is just really foreign to me. And I can't, even when I lived in a smaller town, uh, I can't think of a time where we or other people drop by unannounced. And he made it sound so lovely. Of course, when I think of an unannounced visit, I think, oh, will my house be messy? What will I look like? Will the kids be running around screaming? And yet he just made it sound like such a terrific tradition. And I came away with the same feeling. He's a romantic. He is, his novels are romantic. He's a romanticist, I really should say. I think that's reflected in his novels. Uh, he comes away in those books really making you understand his feeling that the beauty of living is in the small moments, that you can't plan for big deals and that'll make you happy. And what It is the everyday, the mundane, the just that we're alive and we can experience the wonderful parts of life. The book's been out for a couple of years, but if you haven't read it, you should. Uh, I've recommended it to so many people and nobody has come back and said, why did, why did you want me to read that? Uh, they have been uh, very pleased. And I, I hope people will read it now if you haven't read it already. One of the things we mentioned we would be doing is talking about local bookstores. Uh, we think they're critical uh, to the reader's enjoyment, to the chance to get into a local bookstore and, and maybe attend an author's reading or simply to browse among the stacks. Uh, it is a sort of a lost art doing that now. More people are doing it uh, now that we're coming out of COVID. So today we're going to talk to Jan Weissmiller. She is uh, one of the owners of the Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City, Iowa. We talked to, to uh, Niall Williams about rural life in Ireland. How about rural life in the United States? Jan Weissmiller. Jan Weissmiller in Iowa City, Iowa at Prairie Lights. It is good to have you with us. And it is, uh, I think, fitting to actually talk to you in the wake of what was a delightful conversation with Niall Williams. He does such a terrific job of talking about... Um, uh, the peace, the the slower and peaceful, more serene life of rural living. I was wondering if you have any writers that you could recommend, writers or books that you could recommend that that do the same thing, only uh, uh, based in the United States. There's a person that that teaches poetry at the University of Iowa Writers Workshop named James Galvin, that has a really beautiful book called The Meadow. And then I think you know William Kent Kruger does that. Willa Cather did that for Nebraska. And to some extent, you know, Richard Russo in his earlier work especially did it for upstate New York, brought upstate New York into um, beautiful um, perspective. Now there's a lot of writers that do that. I'm curious what, what kinds of things, if they're different in Iowa City, uh, that might be, that you might suspect in the rest of the country that appeal to your customers your readers? 
Well, Iowa City is unusual because the Writers' Workshop is here and people read People in the city, I think, read more widely because the town itself isn't that big. It's not even 100,000 people. And so there are all these writers here, but they interact socially with a lot of other people in the town. And so it's a very well-read town. And, you know, the trends now, of course, in the last, certainly last since 2016, are to read a lot of books on American politics and a lot of uh, books on the environment. What are you most excited about recommending to your customers in the next couple of months? I read Geraldine Brooks's new book, Horse. Do you guys know about that book? It's historical fiction set largely in Kentucky. I'm reading that now. Oh, it's so good. Oh, not put it down. It was amazing. So how did you survive the twin diseases of COVID and Amazon? Well, Amazon, we've been, you know... <laughs> We've been uh, working around Amazon for a long time. But I think you may have heard from other bookstores that, that COVID has really put people off of Amazon. You know, all of, all of us, all independent bookstores have just really worked really hard to provide things that can't be provided online. Recommendations, readings, book clubs. Jan Weissmiller, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Good luck to you and good luck to Prairie Lights. Um, We are delighted to be able to talk to so many independent booksellers around the country. So you take care. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. Jan Weissmiller, one of the owners of Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City, Iowa. Kate? Now that I know of Prairie Lights, I can't wait to go to Iowa City and get lost in there for a few hours. It sounds like, I mean, bookstores like that are one of the last places you can take your family, store your kids in a different area. You go look in this area. Maybe you come check on the kids. You read them a book. Then you go over back to your area. It's just great. Uh, so I can't wait to do that in Prairie Lights. Um, but we're going to have Niall sign us off uh, in his own unique way. And a reminder, those responsible for this podcast are... The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpanobi, and Elizabeth Russo. And as always, we will let our principal interviewee take us off the air. Well, I'll just say um, the way I sign all letters, um, and that is, uh, or emails, um, it's essentially just uh, a two-word prayer, which is, be well. <laughs>